found a podcast where you'll hear the truth and we will praise jesus name we stand for the bible and won't back down from it although it don't bring much fame some folks will like it some will try to deny it but god's word will always stand true it's been tried in the fire still Hello, friends. Welcome to the Pod King Podcast. I'm your co-host, Donald King. And I'm Donnie King, the host of this podcast. This is Monday, May the 2nd, episode number 62, Converted to Rejoice in Temptation, James chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. On this podcast, we study the Bible according to how it was written in the original languages, Greek and Hebrew, and how it was translated into English in the King James Version. In our last study, we answered a question that has been asked often through the years. A listener asked if we have to study our Bibles and wondered if reading them would be good enough. We take matters like this very seriously, so instead of only giving a glib answer, we gave a strong defense of our position on this topic. If the Bible is God's Word, as we say that it is, why would we not want to know as much about it as possible? In today's episode, we start our new book study, and it is in the book of James. We're excited to go through this powerful epistle written by the brother of our Lord. We cover a brief introduction to the book of James, and then we examine a little of the background of James himself. We know that he was not a believer at first, but then after being converted, he was an adamant follower of Christ. We look at the first two scriptures of chapter one, and we cover some pretty amazing things within them. You'll not want to miss this episode. Now for the teaching of God's word. And the lesson for today, I'll turn it to the host of the Pod King Podcast, our pastor, Brother Donnie King. Well, thank you for tuning in with us today. We're excited to be beginning the book of James. We've already done the book of Hebrews. We've done the book of Jonah. We've done a lot of standalone studies and different special editions. But today marks the beginning of the book of James. The book of James is an interesting book, and a lot of people love this book or a lot of people hate the book. It just kind of depends on if you like what's within it. That's right. I like what's within it, and I think that it's very needful for today. Yes. We're going to go ahead and begin. And to understand a book better, it helps us if we know some specific things about the book and its author. It helps a lot to know who wrote the book. It helps to know why the book was written. It also helps to know who the book was written to. Because of all these things, it helps us to be introduced to each book in its proper setting. Now, there's some debate on who wrote this book, but the consensus has it that it was James the Just. James was the half-brother of Jesus who became a leader in the early church. For those of you who have never studied much into the Hebrew language, James is a Greek name. It's the Hellenized Greek form of the Old Testament Hebrew name of Jacob. In the Old Testament, Jacob was known as a liar and deceiver at the first. We know that he later had a come-to-God moment that changed his life forever. This Jacob did not believe on Jesus at the first either. He had his own come-to-God moment that obviously changed his life as well. In the Old Testament, Jacob was a younger brother, and this Jacob was also a younger brother as well that we know his name, James. In the Old Testament, Jacob wrestled with doubt, but he became a man of great faith. In the New Testament, Jacob taught against doubt and proclaimed the need for faith that is tried. 
The book of James was written somewhere between the late 30s to the early 40s AD, making this probably the most early book of the New Testament era. Historians say it was written between five to ten years earlier than Mark or Galatians. James died in AD 62, and Jesus died around AD 30. The council at Jerusalem that James presided over was held in AD 48. We believe that this book was written before the council and after the death of Christ, so that would put it between AD 30 and AD 48. James was writing to the Jewish Christians who had been dispersed by persecution. They had begun to form small assemblies, and they were even having problems already within them at this time. Conflict had entered these house churches, and they had splintered off into several groups who were fighting one another. Some of them had fallen into a worldly lifestyle. Some of them were double-minded. Others of them lacked true faith. The book of James seems to be predominantly focused on ethics. James spends most of his epistle describing how to live a life of faith. He stresses faith and action, which he labels as works, much to the Calvinist chagrin. <laughs> James deals with suffering for doing what's right. He deals with how to handle temptation. He talks about how to treat people fairly without showing partiality. He teaches us that we can prove our faith through our works. He also teaches us how to properly use our mouth for glorifying God and not by gossiping. Some people refer to James as the Proverbs of the New Testament. James uses several vivid word pictures. He describes the double-minded man as the waves of the sea being tossed to and fro with the wind. He talks about tongues being depicted with flames of fire and so on. His letter starts off like an epistle, but it unfolds much more like a collection of wise sayings. And many, many scholars believe that James speaks as an aged man, a sage, or a wise man. One thing about it, we know James is not a pushover, for he rebukes his audience for their worldliness. He challenges them to seek wisdom from God. He condemns them for elevating the rich over the poor. The book of James only has 108 verses within it. But what makes this interesting is that within those 108 verses, James gives 50 imperative commands within it. By giving so many commands within such a short space, this shows that he was looking for action rather than just some claim to faith. I'm sure that all of you are well aware of the debate among scholars concerning James. Many prominent scholars today reject James because of the supposed contradiction between James and Paul's teachings concerning faith. Martin Luther fought hard against this book being put into the canon of Scripture. He staunchly refused to acknowledge it as an inspired book because it went against what Paul taught, or so Martin Luther thought. One thing I do want to point out, Martin Luther also was known for cussing and thought that all Jews should be extinguished for killing Jesus. More modern-day scholars have agreed that it deserves to be in the Bible, and I strongly myself believe that the teaching of James and Paul can be reconciled. And throughout this study, I'm going to be pointing out many places where James and Paul agree. James is not a book for sissies. Some people claim that we should only read James for informational tidbits. They also assert that we should never use the book of James for doctrine. I figure James would have disputed that claim. As we will see in the days to come, this book is full of wonderful things. There's some sound rebukes that we're going to come across. There's places of great encouragement that we're going to encounter. James offers us much insight, and he drops several nuggets to us along the way. There's going to be a few convicting assessments that we're going to come across in the short epistle by the brother of our Lord. So why do we wait any longer? Let's begin with James 1 and 1. James 1 and 1. 
James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes that are scattered abroad, greeting. The book of James starts off interestingly to me because James calls himself a servant of God. Now, there's nothing strange concerning someone calling themselves a servant of God, but James goes on to call himself a servant of the Lord Jesus Christ. This is not so much strange as it is amazing, I guess. I say it's amazing because we know that James was the half-brother of Jesus. This is one of the same brothers of our Lord who mocked him in the scriptures. They definitely didn't seem to believe on him at the first. As a matter of fact, he certainly wouldn't have called Jesus Lord at one time in his life. We're certain of that. If you think about it, there's a time within all of our lives in which we would not and even could not call Jesus our Lord. But back in Matthew 13 and 55, we see James listed as one of the brothers of Jesus. Is not this the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary and his brethren James and Joseph and Simon and Judas? More proof of James being the brother of Jesus is found in Galatians 1 and 19. But other of the apostles saw I none save James, the Lord's brother. In 1 Corinthians 15 and 7, we find one more place where we are told James was the brother of Jesus. After that, he was seen of James, then of all the apostles. We know that the brothers of Jesus shared the same mother, Mary, but their father was Joseph. The father of Jesus is God. Can you imagine how hard it might have been growing up in the same family with the one known as the Savior of the world? Would you have believed on your own brother as being the son of God growing up in the same home? If you always knew each other only as siblings, it would have been especially difficult to see each other as anything more than siblings. Can you imagine how much jealousy and envy they all felt towards the one who was sinless? Can you imagine Mary doing what most mothers do and comparing their other children to Jesus? Why can't you be more truthful like Jesus? Why can't you please your father and I just like Jesus does? Can you see how easy it might have been for his brothers to despise him? Maybe you can see a little bit of the reasoning behind their reluctance to believe on him. Let me go to John chapter 7 and read you verses 2 through 5 to show you how they felt. Now the Jews' feast of tabernacles was at hand. His brethren therefore said unto him, Depart hence and go into Judea, that thy disciples also may see the works that thou doest. For there is no man that doeth anything in secret, and he himself seeketh to be known openly. If thou do these things, shew thyself to the world. For neither did his brethren believe in him." So we know that James was one of his brothers, and if his brethren did not believe in him, that means that James himself did not believe in Jesus even up to this point. This is somewhere in the vicinity of the last year of the life of Christ. Did you notice in James 1 and 1 how James spoke of being a servant of God and of Jesus? I wonder how hard it must have been for him to get to the point that he could consider himself a servant of Jesus Christ. Even more incredulous is the fact that James uses the Greek word doulos, which is better known and interpreted as a slave. How many brothers do you know that would ever stoop so low as to refer to themselves as the slave of one of their other brothers? Doulos translates as a bondservant, one who is subservient to another, a slave to a person. How difficult would it have been for James to refer to his stepbrother as his lord? This isn't being used here as only a term of respect. We know that the word Lord sometimes was used as sir in some settings, but this is an admission that he viewed Jesus as the Lord of all. What happened that got James from where he once was to where he was at the writing of this epistle that we're reading through? What did he have to see for him to change his mind? 
What had to happen for this change to take place in his heart? I believe we've already seen the answer to that question in 1 Corinthians 15 and 7. If you'll remember, that's where Paul said that Jesus appeared unto James after his resurrection. To me, this is the most probable thing that would have convinced James that Jesus truly was the Lord. James was very much aware that Jesus died. The game changer for James was when Jesus resurrected from the dead. Jesus appeared to James for a specific reason. He came to him for a specific purpose. What do you think that reason and that purpose was? Interestingly enough, there are several historians you can read after, including Eusebius and Hegesippus, that say that James died as a martyr. You talk about a complete turnaround in someone's life. James was told by Ananus to renounce Jesus publicly. Now, Ananus was the high priest that took over after Annas and Caiaphas had already retired. He was told, renounce him publicly or you'll be stoned to death. History records this. And believe it or not, James agreed to do just that. They took him up on the wall of Jerusalem so he could renounce Jesus publicly. When all of the Jews that were in the area began to gather together, when they saw such a crowd gather and they waited until all of them gathered together, they wanted to hear the brother of Jesus recant. Instead of renouncing Christ, though, James preached Christ unto all of those who had gathered together. James pulled off one of the most creative ways to draw a crowd and preach to sinners ever known. The man that was the high priest, Ananus, he was so enraged that he pushed James off of the wall. All of the people who had gathered to hear James recant then grabbed up stones and stoned him to death right on the spot. Say what you want to about James, but he obviously lived what he preached. He died boldly. He died bravely. And could I tell you, he died righteously. Reckon who might have been his example that he looked to. I really believe we don't have to go any further than Jesus Christ. His older stepbrother must have been not just an example. His stepbrother had become his Lord, and that's why he was willing to die. Now, let's look at a little bit more of verse 1. James, a servant of God and the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes which are scattered abroad. Greeting. After stating who he is and who he serves, James tells them to who he's writing. He begins to give some insight into the purpose that he had for writing to them. James says he's writing to the 12 tribes. This obviously is a reference to the 12 tribes of Israel, or Jacob, of course. And I find it intriguing here that many people teach that there were only two tribes that still existed at the time of Christ. But James seems to believe that there were definite members of all 12 tribes who were not only still alive, but who had also been dispersed in recent times. For a little more weight to this statement, Paul himself also believed that there were still 12 tribes, according to what he told King Agrippa in Acts 26 and 7. Unto which promise our 12 tribes, instantly serving God day and night, hope to come, for which hope sake, King Agrippa, I am accused of the Jews. Even John in the book of Revelation speaks of there being 12,000 Jews from all 12 tribes who will be in heaven, making up the 144,000, according to Revelation 14 and 3. So we can say with assurance that James is writing to the Jewish people and particularly those Jews who were scattered abroad. This is an interesting phrase in itself taken from the Greek word diaspora. This word means those that are dispersed, those who are displaced. Now, this gives us some insight here for James is speaking to a particular group within the 12 tribes. He's speaking to the ones who had been scattered or dispersed. 
Why were these Jews displaced and dispersed? Obviously, James is writing to Jewish people who believed on the Lord Jesus Christ, and these people were facing intense persecution for that belief. The persecution was so intense, many of them had left the area and were living out of Israel, somewhere among the Gentile nations. Peter even wrote about these Jews who were scattered abroad in 1 Peter 1 and 1. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to the stranger scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, Bithynia, elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. Even the unbelieving Jews spoke of those Jews who had already been dispersed before Christ died in John 7 and 35. Then said the Jews among themselves, Whither will he go, that we shall not find him? Will he go unto the dispersed among the Gentiles and teach the Gentiles? The mention of dispersion here probably is only a reference specifically to the Samaritans, though. I believe the ones that James is writing to are the same ones spoken of in Acts chapter 8, verse 1. And Saul was consenting unto his death, and at that time there was a great persecution against the church which was at Jerusalem, and they were all scattered abroad throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria except the apostles. As he opens his letter to these persecuted and dispersed Jews, James gives them a greeting. This would have caused these people to rejoice to hear from one so closely connected to Jesus. As a matter of fact, the word that James uses here for greeting can also be translated as rejoice. James was not only a brother to Jesus, but he was a fellow believer in Jesus Christ. He was also well known in the Jerusalem area as one of the leaders in the early church. This epistle would have carried a lot of weight to these believers who received this letter. It would have meant a lot to them. Let's go and look at verse 2 for just a moment, James 1 and 2. My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into diverse temptations. Once again, James pinpoints his audience by addressing them as brethren. He then addresses the root cause of his letter by telling them to count it all joy when they fall into various or diverse temptations. James encourages those he writes into, but he uses a very odd word to do so. Count is the Greek word hegemonio. Hegemonio is defined in many different ways. Suppose, think, esteem, judge, and chief. Count it all joy, suppose it all joy, think it all joy, esteem it all joy, judge it all joy. The direct translation for this word hegemonio is actually governor. It's used in Luke 3 and 1, and you'll see exactly what I'm talking about here. Now, in the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, Pontius Pilate, being governor of Judea, and Herod being tetrarch of Galilee, and his brother Philip tetrarch of Iturea, and of the region of Trachonitis, and Lysanias, the tetrarch of Abilene. The word here, Pontius Pilate being governor, or being hegemonio of Judea. This right here makes it a little bit confusing. How can we make any sense of this if we were to read James with that word, my brethren, governor, it all joy. That construction really doesn't work, but it does when you shorten the verb phrase to govern. James was telling them to get a hold of their thoughts until they could think or esteem it all joy when they endured these temptations they were going through. He's telling them control your mind like a governor would control an area. The word that James uses here for joy is kara. Kara is a most interesting choice of words. For one, kara is where we get our English word character from. Kara has joy at the root of it. Kara is the shortened form of charis, which we know better as grace. We should count it as all grace when we fall into divers temptations. 
if it wasn't for the grace of God, we would never overcome any of the temptations we must endure in life. We should govern our thoughts and our emotions until we can esteem our temptations as part of the grace of God working in our lives. I want you to notice that it says that James says, when you fall into divers temptations, this implies that temptations are a definite thing that we will all face. This goes right in the face of what the prosperity gospel teaches that we'll never be sick and you'll never have problems. If you serve God, it takes care of all your issues. And if you have problems, you must have sinned. Now, I want to tell you, troubles, problems, and temptations will come. It's just a matter of when. Notice that James speaks of falling into temptations. You don't climb into a temptation. You fall into one. To give into temptation is to fall from the kara and the charis that we're studying about. You fall from your joy and you fall from grace. When you give into temptations, you are certainly falling away from grace. People accuse Paul and James of thinking differently, but they sound very similar to me. The word for fall here is parapipto, and it means to run into, to fall into, to experience, and it means to face. This is certainly true, for we all run into problems, we all experience temptations, and we all face these things at times in our lives. The word for fall is what Luke used in Luke 10 and 30 when it says that the man fell among thieves. The man going down from Jerusalem to Jericho fell among thieves. This shows us that James wasn't particularly thinking about a person falling into sin as much as he was talking about him falling into circumstances that are caused by our temptations. Hopefully, we fall into these things less than we do the sins. James doesn't try to nail down any specific temptations here. He just simply speaks of diverse temptations. Diverse means diverse, various, or diversified. In 1 Peter 1 and 6, the Apostle Peter talked about manifold temptations, which is very similar to what James is using here. We will see the word temptations a lot in James. It's one of his favorite topics to talk about. It's the Greek word parasmos. Parasmos is what James uses for temptations, and he has, this word has quite a few definitions. It means to do an examination. It means to submit to a test. It means to learn the true nature or character of someone. It means to go through a trial. And one of the last meanings of it is to try to make someone stumble. No wonder James called them diverse temptations. We almost always associate temptations with the devil. But I do believe that the definition of the word here and the context surrounding this verse points otherwise. Parosmos means to be examined or submitted to a test. It means to have your character tried. These actions don't have to be done by the devil, and in all honesty, it's doubtful that this is speaking of a temptation from the devil in this particular verse. Most of the time, we assume that a temptation must be to lust after someone or to desire to hurt someone and things like that. To have your character tested doesn't have to involve sinful things. Now, it certainly can, but it doesn't have to. The part in temptation that the devil plays is what ties in with the definition, which means to try to make someone stumble. That's the whole purpose. The devil gets involved in our temptations, and he begins to use those to cause us to stumble. He wants your walk with the Lord hindered, so he brings about temptations which always are linked to sin. Temptations that are not linked to sin can be trials and tests by God. That is definitely the part of temptation that the devil does, though, is try to cause you to stumble. And we know that God has no part in those at all. 
James tells us in verse 3 that the reason for the trying or testing of our faith is to bring patience. He'll go on in verse 4 and he'll say that these things are done to make us perfect. Now, we know that this is not the devil's intentions when he comes to us with temptation. He's not trying to strengthen your patience, and he's not trying to make you perfect. So we know verse 2 must be speaking of a positive working within our lives of these temptations. This also should show us ultimately it's the Lord who's allowing these temptations in our life to strengthen us and to help us. Now, please note. This doesn't mean that the devil has absolutely no involvement in them at all, because if he can use what God is allowing in your life against you, believe me, he will. As we see in the life of Job, and as we see in the thorn that Paul was given, sometimes the Lord uses the devil to accomplish his means, his purposes, and his will. I want you to think about this. Job went out and he seen the fire of God had fallen from heaven, but it was the devil that brought these things about. How is that possible? Paul says that he was given a thorn in his flesh, lest he be exalted above measure. He said it was the messenger of Satan that delivered it. But he says God gave him the thorn. God gave him the thorn, but he had the messenger of Satan deliver it. And that's exactly the way Job received his trials. The devil came against Job, but not until God had asked the devil, have you considered my servant Job? And this is how these things came to pass. James is right in line with what the book of Job and what happened in the life of Paul correlates with. I truly believe that we could count our temptations all joy if we knew that they were coming from the Lord rather than from the devil. All right. Great teaching today. I certainly love the book of James. Enjoyed that teaching. Pastor, we've got a question that's sent in here to us today. Are you ready? Yeah, let's go with it. Okay, the Bible says not to covet your neighbor's things. So is it wrong to want nice things just like your neighbor has? (laughs) Good question. Good question. If your neighbor has a new truck and you have a desire for a new truck, are you guilty of sin? No, I don't think so. If your neighbor has a Ford F-150 4x4, is it a sin to want a truck just like that? No. But if your neighbor has a truck, like I have described, and you want his truck, that's a sin. That's the difference between coveting and wanting things that your neighbor has. If you desire the very thing your neighbor owns, you will probably begin to despise your neighbor. You might even steal from your neighbor. You might even hope something bad happens to him so you could get his stuff. It's not a sin to want a nice home like your friend has. But it is a sin for you to desire their home, to have their very home. That's right. It's not a sin for you to want a wife, but it is a sin for you to desire someone else's wife. Yes. The reason behind all of this is that you will eventually hope something happens to your neighbor or you will cause something to happen to your neighbor. So he won't have his home or his truck or his wife any longer. So you might can get it. Back in the days when this was first enacted as a commandment, the Jews lived in a tight knit community. They were to step in and help their neighbors and their brothers and all of their families and the nation of Israel if they seen someone in need. So you were around their stuff and you were around their family. And back in those days, if you were to get your neighbor off by himself and kill him, you could take over your neighbor's property and all of his family. If you've done something as bad as to kill him and hide his body and it looks like he's turned up missing, you could take over that and look like a good guy by doing that. That's one of the most extreme forms, but yet that inner desire that causes you to want what he has will begin to cause you to do things you shouldn't be doing. 
That's why the command, thou shalt not covet, is probably one of the longer commands in the Ten Commandments because he goes into specifics there. Let me go to the book of Exodus and read us that, and I'll show you what I'm talking about. The Bible says in Exodus 20 and 17, thou shalt not covet thy neighbor's house. Thou shalt not covet thy neighbor's wife, nor his manservant, nor his maidservant, nor his ox, nor his ass, nor anything that is thy neighbor's. God covered basically everything that was possible. He says, don't covet his house. He may have a bigger, better house than you. Don't try to get his house. Don't desire his house. Don't covet his wife. Get your own wife. Leave his wife alone. Don't covet his manservant. Hire your own servant in. Don't covet his maidservant. Get your own servant. Don't covet his ox, his ass, or any of his animals. Get your own animals. Don't don't steal from your neighbor. Don't covet what he has. Don't try to take what he has. And then he says, don't covet anything that is your neighbor's. It doesn't matter what it would be. If your neighbor has a knife, a pocket knife that you strongly desire, you would be coveting it. You might slip it in your pocket if you caught him laying it down. If your neighbor has a wife that you desire or covet, you might try to entice her. The sin in coveting is in wanting what your neighbor has. You don't want him to keep it. You would rather possess it instead. So people will resort to other sins in order to get it. You would steal to get it. You would kill to get it. You would lie to get it. Coveting actually leads us into many other sins. And the number one of those is idolatry. Covetousness is idolatry. You place something else above God. You desire a thing more than you desire God, you want that thing so much, you don't even fear God any longer for coveting it. You put it in the place of God. This is the great sin of coveting. Great answer, Pastor. That was a great thought-through answer. And Friends, if you have a Bible question that you'd like an answer to, drop us an email at dkministries1977 at yahoo.com. That's dkministries1977 at yahoo.com. We certainly hope you've enjoyed our podcast, sharing God's word. But until next time, may God bless you all. Be sure and come back and listen to our special edition on Friday. I think you'll enjoy it pretty good. I'll gladly bear the reproach, Lord, for the gospel's sake. Where I go, you've already been there, cause I'm walking in Jesus' name. Well, I'm walking in Jesus' name, I'm going where he bid to go. I'm dressing and talking like he wants me to, he's a keeper of my soul. I have learned to lean on Jesus and cast on him my ever concern. I'm looking for a home.